My name is Andy McIntyre. I'm co-founder with Tony Fawner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing the business of sport. We'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the English Premier League in particular has become a truly global force. The word entrepreneur could well have been coined to describe today's guest. Football, property, education counts among his portfolio of businesses. Welcome to Brendan Flood. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. Excellent. So an extraordinary career, huge success in property investment, the building of shopping malls, uh, urban regeneration, owning a a Premier League football club, co-founding an MLS club in the United States has been a huge success. Tell us a little bit more about your formative years and, and what took you to the position that you find yourself in today. Well, it's, I think it's um, initially my my background was being in banking. Um, I was going to go to university. I got uh, offered a place to do economics at Manchester University. I don't know why I'd chosen economics because I was rubbish at maths as a kid. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Um, so, so ended up ended up uh, in a position where at my A level stage, my dad got made redundant, so he couldn't afford to send me to university, and so I applied for a job at uh, Barclays Bank because you know I I played a lot of football at the time and cricket, so I wanted to stay playing my sports, and um, I thought the bank was pretty cool. You know, it's kind of acceptable to you know as a career. So I so got a job at Barclays, started in Colm Branch. Um, I was a humble junior when I started life, doing cleaning the fish tank, delivering the post, uh, you know, honestly doing everything, you know, sorting the storage out. So, so that was where I began. And then I think where I got the wake-up call, uh, so I wasn't really bothered about anything much other than f- football, cricket and girls, you know, <laughs> late late teens and early 20s. Um, my wake-up call was I got sent to London with the bank and uh, did a two-year attachment uh, to London and they fast-tracked me through a lot of promotions. And that I think that sort of awoke what, I, what might be a strength at that early stage, which was that I was quite good with people. I was quite good at talking to people. And a good listener, good responder, you know, and uh, and that helped me sort of build a bit of confidence in that area, you know. So you have to, you don't know what you're good at when you're a young person, do you? So or when you're starting in a new career, so I started to understand that that could be my strength, and then I got promoted, came back from London, got promoted into the regional office of Barclays Bank here in Manchester, and. Uh, I was doing what's called risk management, <laughs> which sounds really, really good. You know, it was it was great experience because Barclays were lending to uh, people all over the north of England, farmers, hoteliers, um, uh, manufacturers, etc. So it was a great spread of knowledge that I picked up about how businesses work, business models that don't work, business models that are cash hungry. Um, and and that really helped me to understand what what investors needed and what what uh, businesses needed to get going and to develop, you know. So, um, 
And then I got to the point in my career where I was probably about 24 at the time. And, uh, and I thought I could do this. <laughs> and, uh, where you sat across the table from a, and somebody who's hoping to create a business and I'd, and they'd be making a proposition to us as the bank and asking us to lend them a million pounds or two million pounds. And I thought, I could do that. I could do this, you know. So why don't I? So I just, um, my first my first idea, which you'll laugh at, which was uh, we, we'd, uh, when I first got married, we lived in Brinskill near Chorley. So Brinskill's a little village. And there was an empty shop down on the bottom row between Brinskill and Widnell. And uh, Italian restaurants had just sort of started to become a thing. <laughs> and uh, so I said to my wife, I said, I said, why don't we set up a, a restaurant called Pizza Ear, like E-R-E yeah. <laughs> and then Pizza Ear. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I could be up front and you could be, you know, doing all the pieces out back. You know, what do you think? She's like, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was one of my first ideas, but... I think it, that that spark had come where I wanted to do something uh, in the creative sense, and I think you've that's something that's an energy because you know when you when you find it, you've got it. You you know it's something where you want to bring people together, create ideas, and I and I think I discovered I had that when I was about twenty five. So it's a mindset as much as anything else. Yeah, yeah, and um, and the and being a bit of a dreamer as well. I think you have to be a dreamer. Um, I always say to our students now, you know, don't give up your dreams until you really have to. So let me interject yeah. there. So, mm-hmm. so one of your most successful projects at the moment is UCFB, uh, which for those that don't know is the only football university in the country, highly vocational, delivering young people the opportunity to work in the business of sport. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll talk you through the, yeah. you know, how that happened, but yeah, I think I think having that ability to dream and take a big risk, you know, that you're almost scared to do, you know, and that that was um, what I wanted to do then. So I got uh, one of the customers of the bank who was uh, a, basically a house builder asked me to go and work for him. And um, obviously, being a banker by nature, you're a bit conservative. So uh, so I said, oh, I'm not sure about that. And then he said, Look, I'll double your wage. I'll get you. A BMW 5 Series, where do I sign? (laughs) (laughs) So I was up and running. So I went working for him. I took a risk. And then then that was great because it helped me. He had a bit of capital. It helped me uh, try my ideas to, in entrepreneurial uh, circles, to to develop a business for him. And uh, so I worked with him for about three years, sort of made quite a bit of money for him. And then, uh, and then I thought, um, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of the work here. I quite like to do this for myself, you know, but I didn't have the capital. So as any of you know, who are listening, if you start a business, the biggest hurdle is money. Um, so, so I said to my wife who was a lawyer, um, so they're very low risk (laughs) and, uh, I said, oh, I'm thinking about setting up on my own. And we just had our first baby at the time. And she looked at me like I'd gone mad, you know. And I said, well, no, look, I can I can make it work, you know. So just uh, let's give it a go, you know. And I can, if it doesn't work, I'll go back and get a job, you know, and uh, work for a bank again. So so I set up uh, Modus, you know, which was um, 
means method in Latin and that's, you know, so I did Latin at school, <laughs> you know, I've forgotten it all now, but, um, and Modus, you know, was, uh, was the brand and it's wanted to become a property developer. So at the time that was my, my aim. And, uh, the first year in business, I earned about a sixth of what I'd earned the previous year in, in salary terms. So it was a really tough year, you know, and, um, and nearly, nearly put me in a position where I thought I've got to go back and get a job again. And you had to put up personal guarantees. You <laughs> talked about raising money. One of the brave things is having skin in the game. Yeah, no, I think, um, the market for helping startups is very poor. You know, I think it still is poor. Um, so I'd basically use credit cards to get myself going. Um, so just got, I was a very well salaried guy before I started in business. So I just got my credit cards up to the limit (laughs) and, uh, and start a business and use that as unsecured debt, you know, because if you go to the bank and ask them to lend you 25 grand and you're setting up a business, they'll say, no, um, you've got to offer them a second charge on your house and you've got to do uh, lots of, lots of compliance things so so that helped me to, to start a business um and then and then i just caught i think i just caught the early stages of the out of town retail market so i i was um i think i was quite good at spotting a development site and so i went around trying to find opportunities where i could take an option agreement to buy the land and uh, so those option agreements you could do 12 months, two years, pay a fee, an option fee, and then have the ability to buy the site within that 12 to 24 months. And if you bought it, then, you know, you'd have to find the capital, which I didn't have. But <laughs> I thought if I can, if I can get the occupier, I'll get the capital. So, um, so I was, uh, I was, I was confident about the locations. So I then worked hard to persuade the occupiers to come into the site. And uh, and I got on the first big one I did was in in Bolton, Tommore Road in Bolton. For those who are from Bolton, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lovely standalone retail unit, which is still there today. Really? <laughs> yeah. And uh, um, so I got that up and running and I sold it to Prudential. Uh, Matalan committed, I sold the investment to Prudential and uh, made a decent profit for me and a co-investor. And that was the beginning of me, for me in doing retail development. So then I had a, a succession, probably I would have been aged about 26, seven at the time. So then I had a run of, of projects, which took me through to being about 30, 31. And, um, and all out of town retail schemes. And then I've made a few million pounds for me by the time I was early thirties. So then I thought, right, what can I do now? You know, you get, obviously you get ambitious. Once you start doing well, you think, think you can do better. You know, it's like life in any job. So I thought, what can I do now? So all right, I'll go into shopping centers. <laughs> so, and uh, all of the institutions, so those are pension funds, they, they were scared of the internet and this would be the mid nineties. So they were starting to be scared of the internet and the effect on the high street, probably about 20 years too early, but, <laughs> but they started selling off the shopping centers. So, um, 
I was one of the beneficiaries of that that sort of um, uh, concern from the institutions. So I started to buy the shopping centres and I just went out, got co-investors who would, would invest with me to come into that pipeline of schemes. And uh, then I had a run probably of good 15 years where I was developing new build and extending existing shopping centres. And I think that era I probably developed and sold and 20 odd shopping centres and retail parks wow. all over the UK. What sort, of, what sort of value would you would you put on that? Well, um, I probably did two billion pounds of development um, during that period. Spectacular. Yeah, and it was, um, and it, you know, but you, the, the more successful you get in property, and if there's any property guys listening, they get it. You know, everybody wants you to do more. So you suddenly have you have a queue of people wanting a job for you. You have a you have a, a lot of opportunities coming at you. So so you suddenly become almost overwhelmed with opportunity. Um, and I found that for me, you know, that I'd got to a comfortable level where I was doing very well. And then probably by the mid noughties, so two thousand and five, I was just working so hard. I'd do a shift shift all day and then I'd be taking pal of work home, which is a foot deep. And then I'd be doing all the work at home. And then I'd be coming back to work the next day and, and same again. And then I'd be doing keynote speeches and and it just it it became overwhelming. So I think the big thing when you have any level of success is to say no, you know, where you can. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, to be, you know, to be um not not try to please people. I think my my attitude. I'm naturally like to please people, um, you know, and I think that's a good thing, you know. But uh, sometimes you gotta you gotta say no. Um, and so I so at that time I was pushing on, and then where we got into sport, you know, it's probably more interest, you know, for the listeners is um, uh, when I bought into Burnley. So I was um, in two thousand and six. I was doing very well in the property industry. Felt very comfortable that I was, um, you know, on a continuing upward path. And uh, so, I was a season ticket holder at Burnley. Had was taking my two sons to the games, and it was the Steve Cottrell era. Um, <clears throat> and so, Steve's manager at Shrewsbury. So. Um, he's still in the game, you know. And Steve, Steve did a good job with the resource we had. Um, but my youngest son refused to come to the games when he was probably seven years old, eight, eight years old. He said, Dad, I'm not coming. It's boring. <laughs> and so the truth, the truth, it, it was boring. <laughs> the football was boring. And uh, uh, so I, I actually sat there and thought, yeah, he's right. It is really boring, this. Um, so, so I thought, well, what can I do? You know, maybe I could go on the board and change it a bit. So uh, I'd been approached to go on the board because I was kind of known sponsor for the club and different things. So they'd asked me a couple of times to go on the board and then I said, yeah, okay. And the, and the entry ticket was 500,000. So yeah, okay, I'll put 500,000 in, get on the board, you get you get a few percent or whatever. Um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll come on the board. So, um, so I go in, at the time the club was turning over six million, uh, losing two million a year. 
And the crowds, the first game I went to as a director, the crowd was 8,000 against Hull City at home. So we were in a really bad place. You know? So this was an investment of love rather than money. Absolutely, Andy, yeah. It was uh, rose-tinted. <laughs> uh, probably a whole, you know, climber of roses, I think. But the I went into the boardroom, the first meeting uh, for the board, you know, it's a beautiful wood panel boardroom at Burnley. And um, and I was, I was sort of daydreaming, listening to, you know, what was being said in the board meeting and, um, and feeling, feeling sort of, you know, really pleased to be there. And, oh, what would my dad think? My dad, would, yeah, you know, wood panel boardroom and this, I'm um, on the board. And then suddenly it was the stark reality of being in a football club. Uh, Barry Kilby was chairman at the time. Barry starts talking about, well, we need to, we need to sell Andy Gray, who was the centre forward at the time. We need to, and he rhymed off four players who we need to get rid of, who were basically the best four players. This was November, uh, and he was talking about selling them in January, and we were six from the bottom at the time. And I said, "Whoa, hang on, hang on. Uh, what, what do you mean? Uh, you didn't tell me this before I put the money in." He said, "Well." Well, uh, you know, so it's sort of a little bit of hesitation. Um, well, we need to do it. We need to we need to get rid of these players so we can get the wage bill down so we're not losing money. I said, yeah, fair enough. But, you know, I, I've not signed up to fail. I'll tell you what, I'll put two million in next week. We're going the other way. So I made a very reactive yeah. decision to put money in. And then I committed shortly after to put up to 10 million in to get us into the Premier League, um, which sounds small today, but at the time it was doable. Um, I'd done my research, so probably a bit of a, I'm a bit of a data geek quietly, you know, so I'd, I'd researched clubs around who got into the Premier League and how much they'd spent, you know, and what they needed to do. So... So make, making that commitment of 10 million was done with not, it wasn't just a, a hit and hope, you know, it was a calculation. Um, and what we decided to do, I'd, because I said we can't afford to have a lot of money on one player, you know, we need to spread bet. So so I said to Steve Cottrell, we've got to sign a, um, a team of captains. So I want players who've got, High level of responsibility, leaders. Let's have a let's have a group of leaders on the pitch, and then we'll you know they know what they're doing, and uh, and we just get the best out of them. So we so we basically went about signing leaders, and that that worked to an extent. And then Steve Cottrell um, started to get distracted by his own ambitions. And um, which sometimes again happens if you ever get on a board, you know, for a football club, the manager gets on a good run and he starts talking about other clubs who might like him. So, so I had a conversation with Steve one day. I remember where I was, was on the M602 driving into Manchester <laughs> and he was telling me about, I should have I gone to Leicester when they approached me and I should have gone to Sheffield Wednesday when they approached me. And... Um, and then I said, oh, right, Steve. So had you gone to Leicester or Sheffield Wednesday, which of the 12 players that we've signed since I came on the board would you take with you? 
There's only one I'd take. <laughs> <laughs> only in football. Yeah. Because someone respond like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. So who, you, you, you've given him full authority to in terms of recruitment at the club because clubs wouldn't do yeah. that in the main now, would they? Oh, no. we. I mean, the, you know, the process of signing a player, typically a manager might present three, four players for a position and then discuss them with you as either, you know, um, board or or chief exec and board, you know. So um, so you, you have the ability to, to support or disagree with a choice. Um, but, you know, it's always best for the manager, I think, to nominate the players because yeah. it's their type of player. And, and the, when you get the players in, they've got to feel motivated by the manager as a person. So it's... It's like any other job in town, you know, you you know, people have got to want to work for the guy, you know, when they come in. Um so so what we <clears throat> what we did, you know, Steve Steve I think actually has a good recruitment brain. Um and and he was good at figuring out who would who would work well together. So he I think he did quite well at the recruitments, you know, and then but then his his ambitions were kind of getting in the way, and the players were were you know being a little bit negative towards him, as things sometimes happen in football, and uh, and so we we decided he should go, and and then we got in Owen Coyle, you know, so <laughs> and Owen Owen was uh, for those who who know him, Owen's a very easy and likable character. Yeah, so he's um, um, he had a great a great style, and he was all about the simplicity of football, pass and move, and energy, and um, and he was he was a delight to be around, and 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 the as the story goes, literally within three years of me being on the board, we were in the Premier League by May two thousand and nine, uh, and Owen has to take great credit for finishing that off. I think. Tell me the moment when you got promoted. Tell me about the actual what the game, what you remember about it, and what was the, the emotion. Well, so Sheffield United uh, and um, and we we won one nil. Wade Elliott scored the the goal, and it, that was quite poignant because Wade had been uh, lured by Fulham. Fulham were after him uh, about a year before. And so he felt he felt a little bit let down by the club that we hadn't increased his wages, and you know, and, and he's a smart lad, Wade. He's manager at Cheltenham now, um, and a really <clears throat> he's a really good, honest grafter, you know, as a person. Uh, so Wade Wade felt let down. So I think he was, you know, he, he was right. I'm going to go. I'm going to leave. Uh, I remember having a, a conversation with him where we were probably. In uh, late October, I think, in the season, and uh, because he was so upset by the fact we hadn't offered him more money, I just said, "Well, look, we'll backdate the contract to the beginning of July, and give you the money you should have had." Mm. Uh, and but then I saw a big smile across his face. I thought, "Right, he's staying." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Wade, had he gone, you know, we might never have got that goal. And he was just such a good guy to have in the dressing room. Um, so we, on the day though, you know, I uh, probably 
Um, I hate to say it, but I'm really superstitious. So I have like a lot of lucky things when things are going well. So I have my lucky shirt, my lucky tie, my lucky cufflinks. And uh, and then I had one or two things in a little bag that I brought as well. Um, and all all the people you love are always there, aren't they, for these big events. So I had all my, all my family knocking about in the stadium and so on. Um, and my dad, my, my younger son was mascot the, on the wow. day. So that was nice. Um, as he says, he was probably the oldest mascot ever at Wembley. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, so that was, so that was great seeing him run out. Then, you know, it was, it all went so quickly the whole day. Uh, but Kevin McKay was chairman at Sheffield United. And, uh, and I remember looking up, but the line of seats looking at him towards the end of the game and as we're sort of coming into land, you know, as, as winners and seeing the Einstein on his face, you know, that he was they were going to lose and me thinking, how lucky are we to be going up? You know, it is so much about luck and, and everything coming in. Players not getting injured. Um, you've got to, I think you can, you can scientifically plan success and, and, um, You've got to, you know, have enough players in your squad, etc. But you just need the key players not to get injured. And then when the 90 minutes comes where you've got to make it happen, somebody has to deliver, you know. So so I felt blessed we got the look. And, um, uh, and yeah, the feeling when I was on the pitch, you know, with the 40,000 Burnley fans in the stand, I'm on the pitch with the team. And... Uh, yeah, there were a lot of special words exchanged between us all. And it was a unique moment for many of us uh, and for the town. You know, we hadn't been in the Premier League or the First Division uh, for 35 years. Wow. So so I think if you if you look at it and you think back to the six million of turnover, too many losses, you know, that that was a big risk I took, but I think it, it helped kickstart the period of success that we've enjoyed since. Because you described on a couple of occasions, of course, this can happen in football. How much of your experience in mainstream business did you apply to transforming Burnley's fortunes? Yeah, it's a good point. I think you've always got to have your own methods, you know. So um, my, I have a... And, you know, I hope it's hope nobody takes offence, but, you know, I have a simple philosophy in business that, you know, no dickheads are terrorists, you know, around you. Like so, the old blacks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, dickheads are people who, who actually don't know what they're doing yeah. and you need to you need to get them out quickly. And terrorists are ones who are actually clever people, but they're not they're not in line with the group. You know, they're not they're not team guys, yeah. you know, so you've got to. You've got to have everybody aligned to get success. So everybody in the club from top to bottom and your standards have got to be good. You know, I mean, we all know in football, we're dealing with alpha males and it's an imperfect environment, but um, uh, because we all walk on water sort of thing, <laughs> but it's, you know, you've got, you've got to have a, a respect for everybody, you know, and, uh, and I think, I think it's important to, to lead with the right standards and show respect, you know, to the, to, you know, the world, um, your fans, you know, make sure that you're, 
um, you're doing the right thing. So, so we, you know, within the club, we, we set, we set our values at the right level, maintain them at that level. And I think that's been, that's been great for Burnley. And we've always chosen managers who can, who can actually deliver on the, on that mandate, you know, the creative guys, um, Apologies for my phone interrupting. <laughs> uh, the, you know, the guys who are creative, but they also they respect the values of the club. So you'd created a clearly a clear culture from the top of the business yeah. and every and people had to be aligned lower down mm-hmm. the food chain. Yeah, absolutely. And and we I think what was what was useful for managers, and I remember particularly uh, Eddie Howe looking at this when we recruited Eddie Howe. Um said, look, Eddie, this is how the economics of football work. You know, we if we find a million pounds as Burnley, we need to make three million pounds on that player. So show me, if I sign player X, show me a comparable player who looks like this player who was then sold for three to five million pounds. And Eddie, Eddie got that model and he said, right, okay, so every signing we made, he would present it on the basis of this player looks like that player. And if I develop him a bit further, I think we could we could get a valuation of this player at this level. So player trading was the heart of the culture as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think matching, obviously, you know, we, the, what we tried to ensure after my my involvement with the club was to ensure stability, which was no sales during January. So, so we, as a club, we rarely sold in January since then. Um, but we, but we always looked at the economics of buying and selling. So, right, what what's our multiple of on the player? You know, we bought him for one, we're selling him for three, we're selling him for five. So we looked at player trading as a big, big part of our ability to be successful. Because if you, you know, if you cash in a player. Who's, who's ready to go somewhere else, you know, so that player's itching to go anyway because he wants to get his next his next big step. Um, you're cashing a player for five yeah. back then. <clears throat> um, and, well, give a specific example. Jay Rodriguez came through our youth academy um, and we sold him to South- Southampton for eight million. Uh, Jay was ready to go, yeah. but getting eight million for Jay... That gave us the ability to buy two or three new players. Um, so it was a, it was a, the ability to reinvest at a rate that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So, um, and I guess that first promotion to the Premier League was a game changer in terms of the club's finances. Can you remember what the turnover was in the Championship as compared to the next season in in the Premiership? Oh yeah, yeah. So it, I think the year. Uh, 2000 season year ending 31st of July 2009 we would have turned over uh, around 12 13 million and we would have break break even small loss because of the promotion bonuses etc uh, when we got into the Premier League I think the first year we made 90 million revenue and our profits were 35 million is there any other business around where one kick, one moment in time can transform your your revenue so spectacularly. No, I, otherwise I'd be in it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
Yeah, so it is, it is, it's fascinating that you can do that. I mean, you, you know, what you do, you become, you're more, you're less a football club and you're more a media business, aren't you? You're, a, you know, we're all, we're all about content and entertainment when you get in the Premier League. So, and it's, a, I think it's fantastic for the UK that we have. The industry is, is centered on uh, the English Premier League. Um, and um, we're all we're all lucky to be part of it, you know. So I think I think the founders of the Premier League deserve a lot of credit for for making that move and making sure we get the best managers and the best footballers to come and play here. Uh, and I, and and I say, whilst it's you know, there's uh, some of the English players probably don't get as many much chance to develop themselves. You know, it's probably. 150 English players in the Premier League, you know, whereas in the past you might have had twice as many um, in the old first division. Uh, but I think I think the one the players that we are developing are are better than they would have been. Yeah, because they're playing just, alongside the best. Yeah, yeah, it's it's you know the elite, you know, it's the super elites, isn't it, in the Premier League? So what about the profile of, of Burnley as a town? That the Premier League delivered. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> I think Would people I think have heard they, of Burnley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Burnley. You know, I, I always say, you know, with a great deal of genuine pride, Burnley is it was a founder club. You know, in eighteen eighty two, we were a founder club. We were the first club to have a training ground away from the stadium, and we we're the first club to have a university in football business. You know, so. So we were the founders of many things, and the town is best known for its football. You know, if you if you ever ask anybody anywhere, have you heard of Burnley? They say, "Oh yeah, Burnley Football Club." Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, so yeah, that that's kind of our identity. And um, uh, Owen Coyle coined the phrase once that uh, you could fit the whole of Burnley into Old Trafford, which I think is a great line, and it's true. You could. You know, it's less than 75,000 population. Um, so for us to be competing with the likes of Manchester United, Manchester City, etc., cetera, uh, although I would say Man City, they, we're not competing with them, are we? But uh, they, we regularly get beaten five or six there. But, uh, but it's, yeah, we do, you know, we do compete with the best. And I think... I think that's the beauty of the game, isn't it? Having a few smaller clubs to play the big clubs, but we're, we've got a rich history, and uh, and we have different, you know, a different way of thinking, you know. So we've got to find, we've got to be, uh, we we can't just spend money to win. We've got to be different to win, you know. So I think, I think the some of the best. Uh, playing and tactical thoughts can come out of clubs like Burnley because they've got to think more, got to think smartly about how they how they take on the Giants. You talked earlier about your early role involved in risk management. Mm. So did that impact on the way you kind of ring-fenced Burnley against going from uh, the glory of the Premier League to going out of, almost out of business the way that Sheffield Wednesday or Portsmouth or yeah. one of these types of clubs has... Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Um, I think what we what we had is um, uh, on the board generally, and I credit credit the board as a whole really that we were uh, once we did have success and we started to get Premier League revenues. Um, the attitude was right. We've got to uh, 
um, make sure we invest this really carefully. So we had three promotions to the Premier League over the, the last sort of 15 years. And, and the first with the first promotion, we focused primarily on infrastructure. So we, the revenue we got in, we put it into the, the stadium, the training ground, etc., cetera, uh, to try and sort of strengthen the club. Um, and then on the second one, it was, again, more about things you'd like to have, you know, so we prioritised what we'd like to have, you know, more me- more media offer, more of this, more of that. And it was it was all the nice to have stuff, you know, that we that we put our money into. And and then more more towards the player budget, you know, so we upped the player budget to stay in the league a bit longer. But then on the third promotion, it was all about the manager and the playing budget. So we that's probably why we stayed in the Premier League for six years, because we sunk a lot of cash into that. Uh, but we but in terms of the philosophy around the the cash and the balance sheet, we we determined that we would always have to be to be a club that's bankable, investable, we would always have to make a profit and we would always have to have cash on the balance sheet because who would want to invest in Burnley? Unless there was, it was super safe. Yeah. You know, guys from Burnley would like me, but, you know, outside of Burnley, a lot of people want to invest in city clubs. You yeah. know, they want to, you know, the Bristols, Birmingham's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of cities more attractive than Burnley because they've got bigger numbers of fans, you know. So, so we had to be different. So our difference was always that we would always have cash and we would always make profit, which, it's quite hard to manage when you're surrounded by guys who want to win every Saturday. Uh, well, are you exposed yeah. to your, your public audience every Saturday, yeah. demanding audience, aren't you? Mm. I'm on, a, on, a, on an emotional, personal level, how difficult is it to resist the clamour for spending? Sometimes it, it can be. I think, the, um, I think in my early days on the board, definitely I found it more difficult to stop myself getting caught up in the desire of the fans to win and to go and sign whoever, you know, so you, so you do get, you do get pressurized and you do feel that you should, you should listen. Um, but probably after about maybe two seasons of that, uh, I, I would never look at the fan, uh, the fan forums or the, or, you know, listen to whatever was came at me on Twitter. I just, you know, thought, well, I've got to be independent-minded. I've got to do what's right for the business. Um, and my my business focus has to be about making the club profitable, sustaining the club, and trying to be sensible as much as we can, whilst whilst trying to improve the the performance of the club. Um, two diffi- difficult things to marry up. Because, um, you, you know, you make one... A lot of clubs have suffered, you know, and we can name we could name ten easily now, but a lot of clubs have suffered because they've made one very big mistake, you know. They made, that might be the wrong choice of manager, or the, or the you know they've they've had a player who's dragged the budget down massively, and that player then has pushed other players away. So you've got to be so careful about who you who you bring in as manager. Your manager is your most important decision, whatever the club. 
you make the wrong manager choice, that's your, that's the wrong, that's a big decision. That's interesting because you've you had um, Owen Coyle as your manager, <clears throat> um, Eddie Howe as yeah. your manager, Sean Dyche as your manager. Three yeah. very different characters, and yet yeah. they all managed to maintain the momentum of your success. Yeah, yeah. If you had them in a room, they'd all get on really well, right? Because um, uh, they've they're both glass half full guys, you know. I think. Um, Different different um, ways of playing football, but I think now you'd you'd you know they probably all learn from each other in, in you know in, certainly via Burnley the uh, things Eddie learned from Sean, I think Sean's observed things about Eddie that he he probably likes you know so they'll have a great mutual respect I think especially Sean and Eddie, um, and I think Owen's Owen's a, you know more of a charismatic leader you know so I think. Um, you know, he's 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 a joy to be with, but he's probably not as technical as Eddie and Sean on the you know training and and the match day uh, structure and how the team should set up. So uh, they are different. I think what what I did when we first got into the club um, was you know we we would only we'd only ever make money out of player trading. We never made money out of manager trading. So, so why don't we make money out of manager trading? Well, you can't do that. So of course you can. So let's put in the manager's contracts a, a good premium. If somebody wants our manager, you know, let's price it in. Um, so we we made good money out of manager trading over the years. And, um, and it, again, it helps the manager because the managers, once he wants to move on, mm-hmm. He feels less guilty about moving on because he knows the club's getting compensation, um, and it's that that marketplace has established itself much more now. Yeah. You know, every top club will have compensation for managers, but back then there wasn't. You know, it was quite new. Um, so we so we started to put it in the contracts, and um, and we you know we got good compensation for Owen and Eddie, uh, Sean obviously. Did his ten years, you know. So, um, but yeah, they were all they were all fantastic for Burnley. But sometimes you've got to have a different tune, you know, different voice to to freshen the club up. You know, it's it's. I think everybody was um, nervous at Burnley. What would happen if Sean Dykes left? You know, what would what would we do? Um, and. And I take no no credit for you know at Vincent Company that was Alan Pace and his board, um, um, but when he signed Vincent Company, I was straight on to him to say that's a brilliant recruitment because he will really pull the players in, um, and he loves Manchester, so he loves the area, so he'll want to be here, he'll be happy, um, and I think it's a, you've got to you've got to have a you know, you whenever you sign a manager or a player, you've got to understand what their connection with the area is and the club. You know, and and really invest in that. You know, what what is it that's going to make this work for them? Are these the same principles you apply in your other businesses in in recruiting senior executives? Um, yeah, I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tried to. I think the. I think in other businesses you you probably you you know you don't get the instability of football because it's you know once um, your typical turnover for a 
uh, a senior manager in in any business might be five yearly, you know, whereas in a in a football manager it's one yearly. You know? so, <laughs> other than Sean, yeah, other than Sean, yeah. So, um, so I think it's um, uh, it's different in business. I, I when you when you get into business, you've got to have you've got to understand why somebody wants to work with you, you know, and uh, where you how you can develop them. Um, and then I think you've got to, you've got to, you, you know, you've got to find something, something in them that makes them feel inspired to be with you, you know, and get the best out of each other. Um, so I think that team building has always been the thing I've tried to work on in business, you know, building the team and understanding how the team should be, you know, and trying to keep, um, trying to keep everybody respecting each other. Um, uh, but at the same time, I think it's, you know, we're all, we're all learning. I think because the business world, it, it changes, it changes every few years, I think, you know, and so lockdown changed things in business, uh, which has been, been something which everybody in every walk of life would say, yeah, this, I, you know, I go more remote now, or I do my in order to get decisions from people, I don't have to go as face to face or, um, you know, the expectations have changed in my world because of, you know, and are these good things or bad things? Um, (laughs) I think we could go down a right rabbit hole here, Andy. (laughs) So the, uh, so I would say, I would say my opinion, you know, we've, we've become lazier as a nation because of lockdown. I think it's, um, uh, you know, people people like the the home comforts. You know, we all do. You know, that's why that's why weekends are invented so we can enjoy our home comforts. I always say Friday night's not the same without Monday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's that's it. The difference is key. Um, so I I think personally, I think we should only have a four day week anyway because I think the world doesn't work fully on a Friday. Right. Um, and everything moves faster so we can fit more into the four days, that Monday to Thursday. But I think that's got to be a full four days. And then you drop the Friday. You know, the five-day um, working environment was was probably created 200 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, probably needs a review, you know. So I, I think... I think you know, the world moves fast now, you know, much faster than when I was 18, 20, 21. Um, and we, we can get decisions made and, um, and get, you know, make our businesses successful. But we have to have everybody all connected at the same time, you know. And I think, I think there's been a disconnection created by lockdown and uh, lockdown practices. So, so people... People, I think, are still trying to understand how they fit in, you know, and that, what, what's their way of work. It's a nice segue into uh, your business that I have a particular interest in, your education business and and developing talent, developing young people. Yeah. We'll go on to actually the university, but how, how challenging is it for young people to come into a business where they don't work face-to-face with, meet colleagues, learn from colleagues in, in every respect? Yeah, yeah it's... Um, I mean, human human contact and personal development is is essential for every single human being, and and I think we only get it by, you know, having somebody who we look up to, somebody who we we, you know, I can 
if you were to ask me who my mentors were, mm-hmm. there's three Martins, you know, so I had uh, three Martins during the early part of my career. They were all, they were all different mentors. Uh, one was the property guy, um, and he taught me that uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So when you get in a situation, you've got possession of it, work hard, make sure you get the best out of it because you've, you've got it, yeah. you know. Um, then I had another Martin in the bank, Barclays Bank, uh, who I worked for, and he taught me that there's always a plan B and even a plan C and a plan D, but make sure you have your plans, you know. <laughs> so it was always, okay, don't just have one plan, you know, get get the get the get the plan a b c d you know make sure you've always got a fallback plan um and i think that worked for me during my career mm. um and then the third martin um uh, was has been a, a property co-investor with me and he was a great a great trader you know and his his attitude was um Brendan, you say you get seven right, you get three wrong, right? So, but when you're failing on your decision, you get the wrong decisions, just get out as quick as you can, right? So I accept you're going to make bad decisions, but get out as quick as you can. One of your big decisions was to launch your own university. Yes, yeah, yeah, no, that was a big one. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, I think that sort of came back to when I, when I was... Um, uh, invested in Burnley and got, got in board with Burnley. I was spending more time in the US, you know, so because I wanted to link up with a football club over there. Um, and and I'd started to sort of consider opportunities there. Uh, and I, but I, the, the way the address sport in the US, as we're starting to see now with the wave of American investment into the, into the Premier League and the Championship, um, was was fascinating to me, you know, the way they operate, you know, and they think, they, sp- they talk about sport properties. So any sport asset, they call sport properties. And they, they their business models are, um, are, you know, are long-term. They don't think short-term. In the UK, we were thinking very short-term. Um, and they, they talk a lot about franchises and, uh, which they can probably afford to do more because the cities are very independent and they're not as tribal as our cities. Um, but I, I found it fascinating. I started to sort of look at the the whole business model more. And as I came back into the UK, I was trying to strengthen the staffing at Burnley. So I I, uh, I was sat in Manchester Airport talking to three other guys and then they were from all over the world. And I said, look, I'm trying to get better people into the club. You know, where do you get, where do you get the best graduates in, in football business? And well, nobody, nobody knew of a university that did football business. And, well, you know, what about Loughborough? And I'm like, no, no, no. The students there, they do, they're just like Olympic athletes, and they, but they're, you know, they're good runners or the good hurdlers or whatever. But they study in history or economics, etc. Performance base, yeah. So. And then another guy said, well, what about Pachucha in Mexico? Well, Pachucha, that's just a football university. So it's guys who 
they were good elite sportsmen, they can play football, but again, they were studying other subjects. They weren't focused on the football business side of, of life. So I said, okay. I said, oh, well, I might set that up at Burnley then. <laughs> so it was literally as off the cuff as that when I started. And then, oh, now King uh, Charles, um, and then, you know, this is a true story, but they, you know, it's Prince Charles as was, has a real interest in the uh, all the architecture in Burnley along the canal because a lot of the mill buildings are, you know, are f- fabulous looking. And so he came on a visit to Burnley in 2009 and uh, we were sat on the board and talking about, oh, what should we talk to Prince Charles about? Oh. So I said, well, look, I've got this idea. I want to set up a university doing football business degree programs because here at Burnley we're famous for football. This is our heritage. Why not here? You know, and property's cheap, which is good for students. So so it was, all oh, right, yeah, go on then, Brendan. Yeah, you do that. So Prince Charles comes in <laughs> and uh, and he comes up, big long line of people shaking hands and he gets to me and I've got all these computer graphic images of what we might do. And... Uh, and I start to pitch him with, this is Burnley's famous for the sort of engineering industry, et cetera, but it's a beautiful place, but people communicate well. Uh, and we, we could be good at education because of our communication. Property is affordable. But what's at the core of Burnley is our football. And I, we're going to create the first football business university in the world. And Prince Charles went from being mildly interested to very interested wow. with him and within a heartbeat. And he said, this is really the, be the first in the world. And I said, yes. So he switched on, asked me lots of questions because he's a good entrepreneur in his own yeah. right. And, uh, and, and then at the end of the day, I went to him and I said, if that's the reaction from the future King of England, I'm going to get on with this. Yeah. And that was it. I started to throw the money in to get the, to get the projects up and running. And what a, you know, the aim for me was was um, really about giving kids like I was when I was eighteen. I wanted to, I wanted to be in sport. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be on the telly, um, and I couldn't figure out how to get there. I had no idea how to do it. Um, so I just thought, I bet there's kids like me out there who would who want to work in football and sport. So. I know how it works now, so maybe I can help them get there. Um, so it was mo- it was more of a humble plan, you know, to do things for kids around Burnley, um, to be a benefactor, you know, for that for that region. The vocational programs that delivered real world jobs. Yeah, yeah. So we were literally thinking of. Um, we started off with three degree programs, and we were literally planning to do something which was just for the Burnley area. Uh, and and what I found was once I, once I opened the campus, the interest was, was high. We had 60 students in our first year. We had 120 in our second year. Um, and I, I realized there, was, there were a lot of people out there looking for what we were doing. And then the FA came to visit visitors and the FA invited us to open a campus at Wembley. And um, and now, you know, we've 3,000 students out of our campuses in Manchester, Wembley and uh, Miami. So it's now now a bigger undertaking. Um, 
not what I expected or planned for, really. Well, you've launched the yeah. Global Institute of Sport. Explain to people what exactly that means and, and, and the international flavour that you've, you've added to the UCFB mix. Yeah, we so we, we wanted to expand out, but two reasons. One was to allow our UK students the ability to go and network out and, and to better themselves because sport is very much about who you know and networking and that ability to think about importing and exporting sports, learning from elsewhere and bringing it in or learning from this this location and taking it out. Um, so I wanted to import and export talent. So, so we created a study hub network um, uh, where we could where we could send students into Toronto with Maple Leaf Sports and New York with Red Bulls, um, Atlanta, and then um, Melbourne, and finally with uh, Miami. So Miami is now a full campus, so it's permanent campus. We've got permanent facilities, and the others are more what we call teaching event hubs, where we do um, summits and teaching events on a regular basis. And we use the brand Global Institute of Sport principally because we we want um, to talk to um, people in the marketplace in those different geographies who where soccer might not be the number one sport. So we we want to to engage with sport sporting um, learners and sporting um, leaders in different economies. To, to say, yeah, this is what we do. We do sport. We Our vision is to become the Harvard of sport across the world. Um, how do we engage with you? So we could involve all of the bigger sports in the world. So our demographic of students has been students who are not necessarily here just for football. They're here for other sports, uh, but they love the fact that we're a pure environment. We're all about sport and, and the business of sport. And I guess the third prong of your education offering is is VSI at the executive mm. education level, where it would probably be fair to say they've become the preferred education provider for a host of international sports stars, Premier League uh, ath- players, athletes from cricket, tennis, rugby. What was your thinking behind um, stepping into that elite environment when you when you traditionally worked with younger? Yeah, it's more. I think. I think the. Uh, for us, when we were, we were discussing VSI, you know, with yourself and and Tony, um, it was it was as very much about the opportunity to educate on a lifelong learning platform. So the ability for people to develop at different times in the career. Um, I think the beauty of sport is you can you can jump on the conveyor belt at, at any point. You can jump on at eighteen. You can jump on at thirty eight. Um, but you've got to be able to engage with the marketplace and enable people to to enrol with you at different points in their life. So, so I think for me, with the aim of be, becoming that lifelong learning platform, we we needed to look at what what we would categorise as the executive education end and enable professional sports people to to join the programs that we that we provide um, and also people who are from just want a career change you know and, and develop themselves but they want to go in that direction of sport and 
And I think that's what, you know, we've we've been able to do is in VSI and sort of try to try to get that that rounded approach to the market. So whoever we engage with, whether it's a governing body or a league or a club or an international organization, they can see that uh, the cookie the cookie is is now quite right, you know, so we can cookie cut around the world, you know, so we could offer what we do elsewhere in the world and replicate a lot of a lot of the principles and the learnings um, and try to develop their economy. Because again, looking at I talk about sport economies, some are established, some are emerging. Um, and if you say take if you take a simple a comparison, you know, China is probably ranked 100 in football terms in the world. So it's an emerging sport economy. Uh, but if they were to invest and, and do it in a way which was um, long term, you know, and professional and, and with education integrated into it, then I think they could be really, really powerful. Um, and so anybody who's at a political side of life, who's trying to create a strong sport economy, they have to have education as the core skill, you know, so you're developing professionals right the way through who are going to improve the all of the organisations, whether they're within the football finance, football business side, whether they're in media or whether they're in performance, they need professionalising and they need to be in line with the elites across the world. Um, so, so that's our aim is to help with that journey. You know, and we're we're one. We're I think we're we're improving year on year and getting better as we go. So, skilled professionals for every point within the sports organisation. Yeah, exactly. And I think once we've we've got the. Uh, the position where we've got 10,000 alumni, you know, around the world, you know, we've, we're probably close on 5,000 now and a bump into our alumni all over the, you know, and going to different clubs can be, you know, rugby games, cricket games, you know, and they're, you know, they're involved in all this. And so UCFB, I think, and, and our other brands, you know, VSI, uh, GIS, I think are, could be really influential on the world of sports over the next 20 years. And, and we want to do the right thing. We want to set the right standards and make, make, make sport beautiful, you know, and I think, you know, that that's, that's what we're aiming at is to make it really good, really enjoyable, but also a beautiful business model. So uh, you talk about your kind of alumni. We just had uh, uh, Wes Morgan, who's studying, on the master's degree, obviously Premier League title winner, yeah. um, and the popu- those populates that program are largely uh, senior figures in sport with ambition. Yeah. What's your feeling about um, chief executives in sport? Can people uh, transition from senior leadership positions outside of of, of sports uh, by studying on the CEO program, for example? Can they hone their skills so that they can then function? in top positions in sport? Yes, uh, certainly they, they can. Because we've uh, got lots of people downtown in business who are yeah. senior leaders. Yeah. Coming on programmes such as this, yeah. there is an entry level for sport, would you say? Yeah, definitely. And and the 
you know, what, what we're seeing, you know, if you look at America, for example, there's a, you know, there's new franchises being opened every month, you know, in the, in the US. Um, this, you know, the UK, the UK is getting bigger, stronger. If again, if you look down the, the stack, you know, we've got national league clubs more and more becoming professional, mm-hmm. you know, look what's happening with Wrexham, Notts County, these are really strong clubs. Sixteen thousand people at Notts County on Saturday. Yeah, yeah. No, they, who would have who would have thought that National League was it was purgatory, wasn't it? Yeah. If you were down there twenty years ago, that was purgatory. You know, here now it's heaven. And um, so I think there's there's a real opportunity for people to, like managers, I think young chief execs have got to be prepared to start at the National League level and or in or in um, even lower, you know, if, if they can get in the right club with the right owner and get a good plan, you know, people will respect performance at that level mm. right up the chain, you know, and there's there's big opportunities because um, every club is investing in its women's teams, every club is investing in its communities. Uh, so the community programmes have become, you know, it's like the sport arm of a council now. Uh, you know, football clubs, the influence within it, within their town or city is, is bigger than it's ever been. Uh, so they need skilled people who are passionate about the community. That's number one for, I think, for any chief exec is to, to care about the community they're in um, and to network uh, heavily because there's a lot about who you know and, and finding out what's current uh, what's fresh, you know, and being being on the front line. So, um, and for chief execs who who want to be part of that, you can be, and you you need to you 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 need to skill up. Um, uh, look at look at how, what what are the right networking opportunities to engage in the industry, and then get after it. But don't be too shy about uh, starting lower, you know, and. Like anybody, we like me starting in Barclays Bank as a, a junior. You got to start somewhere. Yeah. Um, but when you get success, some of the numbers, championship clubs are paying chief execs half a million plus a year. You know, for as a salary, uh, Premier League guys, you know, a couple of million. Yeah. So it's real money. You know, real money, probably much more than you'd see in the private sector in business. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's exciting, it's fun, and you're making a difference in your community. So you're busy building Burnley. You start off with 60 students and build a university. Not content with just that, you had your eye on the American market. And I've heard stories of a, a night in Chicago that were fairly impactful. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's true. <laughs> and uh, so that going, winding the clock back, so when I got... Um, into Burnley and start to look at how we could recruit better. You know, that was the the call to action. How do we recruit better? Because we can't afford to be paying top prices. So maybe maybe we go to America, get a strategic alliance with an American club. You can get four-year contracts on players in America with annual breaks. So it's it's good for the owners, not so good for the players, you know, the athletes. But... And, uh, so, but if you get a good player, you keep them, um, and and we we were looking at how could we develop 
that market. So bringing kids in South America into North America um, and other Scandinavian countries into North America. And then, and then once they're ready, bringing them across to the UK. And whilst I was doing that, I'd, I'd done a roadshow, sort of seeing um, afters and clubs who were probably USL. There's MLS, uh, which is major league. Then there's the USL. So USL uh, with, a, with a club, the target market at the time. And the franchise fees for the USL at the time were $250,000. Um, so, so we... We were sitting in a bar in Chicago. It's myself and Gary Miller, who's Basic Sports. And um, Gary was with me on some of the trip. And we were discussing which cities in the US that would that would take a football club that could that could potentially grow big. And so we we wrote down five or six. And uh, and I said, right, I'll have a go at Orlando. Yeah, like so. What was it attracted you to Orlando? Um, obviously, sunny. <laughs> <laughs> nice golf. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice, nice golf. Um, yeah, just the obvious things, and but also we it was near to South America, so it'd be good for recruitment, bringing players up from South America because they like the sun, and there's a lot of Hispanics around Orlando. So we get a good audience, you know. So the audience would be good, to so you get good, uh, good crowds for the matches, um, and and again you're in a successful economy, so sponsorships would be good, uh, and we we felt there was a there was a gap in the market there, so uh, that was that was the primary uh, motivation to go for Orlando. Uh, so we we literally jump started it, took a lease of the Citrus Bowl, um, started to brought in a guy who was from an ex ice hockey background to be like a MD to help set set up the the sort of system the the business model, and um, and then I got a call from Phil Rollins and Phil was out in Austin at the time, Austin in Texas, and he got a PDL side established. And Phil had Adrian Heath of uh, Everton and City Inchi. Fame. Inchi. Inchi as his manager, because uh, he's a Stoke lad and Phil's a Stoke lad. So, um, and Phil Phil rang me, it was a, a weekend call, and he said, Bren, Bren, listen, I've heard you thinking of setting something up in Orlando. Why don't you why don't you come over into Austin with me and we'll create a first team and so on and uh, and rather uh, you know a bit harshly I thought in retrospect but I said Phil if I was setting up a club in England now I wouldn't put one in Burnley so why would I why would I set up a club in Austin and <laughs> so the so he and Phil went really quiet and for about 30 seconds and I said Phil are you still there and uh, Phil said Ren you're right you're right <laughs> so he said I'll move everything to Orlando so literally credit to Phil he took a quantum leap yeah. and and shifted himself and his family across to Orlando and brought Inchi and a lot of the players so we suddenly had this ready-made team mm-hmm. um and we paid the franchise uh, franchise fee, 
and got ourselves going in the USL. We had two or three years in the USL where we were winning everything and it was a lot of fun. And we were getting crowds of maybe seven to 10,000 and maybe 12 for the big games like the playoffs. Um, and then we, we decided that the board was Phil on the ground there, John Bonner, guy who was very involved in everything and myself and we were we just decided we wanted to go for an MLS franchise but the cost of the fee the cost of the franchise fee was 70 million dollars and neither of us or none of us had 70 million spare at the time <laughs> and uh, so we decided to create an investment memorandum and and go on seek that investment you know which is you know kind of what you do in business if you if you haven't got the money doesn't mean you can't do it but you just have to involve other people who have the money so so we said right we've got this great franchise we've got a very successful engagement with the community um, we think we can grow this much bigger um, we then got an agreement with the with the county to do them to put up a lot of the capital to build a new soccer specific stadium uh, which they do in the US they're great for supporting the, the leisure model because it helps the hotels helps the city you know so they'll they'll put money up from public funds to build stadiums one of the uh, graduates of the uh, master's program has gone to Charlotte as the GM mm. Mm. and of course they spent a fortune on the stadium there and it's uh, oh, yeah. absolutely yeah. magnificent but very much sponsored by the city. Yeah. Oh, it's it's admirable. They've got a can-do mindset in the US, which which we've lost a little bit here um, in the public sector. And so so we, we got state behind it. We we got the momentum with the community and we put together the IM and and then we off we went. We decided who we're gonna target. And literally two weeks into that process, um, uh, Phil Phil sends a message round to all of us. We need to get on the phone tonight, six o'clock tonight. Let's have a phone call. So Phil says, um, "Right, we listen, guys." He said, I've, "We've got this kid in the youth academy who's uh, Brazilian descent, and uh, and he his dad has been watching the club, and he asked for a meeting with me, you know, because he was interested in getting involved with the club. So he came in, came in for a meeting." And so he's, he sat there with Phil and he says, oh, I'd love to get involved with the ownership, you know. And Phil said, oh, well, great. We're looking for some investment, you know. I mean, you could maybe put a million dollars in or whatever, you know. Oh, how much are you looking for? Well, a hundred million. Um, so <laughs> so he said, well, what if, what if I did all of it? You know, so, so Phil nearly fell off his chair. Mm -hmm. And said, really? You know, he said, what, what's happened? And, you know, it turned out he just sold his business for 700 million, an English language school in Brazil. Wow. So he had the cash and really wanted to get involved. So so we struck a deal with him and uh, and the rest is history. You know, the, we, within probably another couple of years, we had we were, myself and Gary, who was, who'd been in that bar scribbling on a beer mat, um, you know, five years previous, we're sat in the new stadium um, with 60-odd thousand fans there, most of them wearing Orlando shirts, playing New York City at home. And 
uh, and we looked at each other and said, this is for the first game in the Major League, MLS. And we looked at each other and said, we didn't think this had happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, you know, and again, it's that intent. You you commit to something. You know, anything anything can happen if you, you know, if you set your sights big. Uh, but you've just got to be, I think, you know, work really hard, you know, and that, that good things happen, I think, if you're nice to people as well. One last question. So much success behind you. What are you looking to do now? What would you like to see at the, in the end of the next five years? Well, that's, um, I'd love, I'd love to, you know, get to the position where we've, within UCFB and GS, GIS and VSI, you know, that we've got, 10,000 plus students, you know, on our books and, you know, again, growing themselves, growing our community, you know, and doing, again, developing sport across the world. That would, that, I'd die a happy man if that happens. And um, so that's, that's, you know, it doesn't matter what's involved financially. That's my goal is to have that legacy. Fabulous end way to end the conversation, Brendan. I think it's been fascinating for everybody who, who will listen to it. And uh, many thanks uh, for your time today. Much appreciated. Thanks, Andy. You know, that's uh, really enjoyed it myself. Thank you. <laughs>